Welcome to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast, brought to you by DSW Ministries. Your host is singer, songwriter, speaker, and domestic violence advocate, Diana Winkler. She is passionate about helping survivors in the church heal from domestic violence and abuse and trauma. This podcast is not a substitute for professional counseling or qualified medical help. Now, here is Diana. Welcome back. We're going to do part two of my conversation with Marcy Piercy. And we had a great time last week talking about all kinds of stuff. We got to know her a little bit. She loves to travel. She lived in Germany for a while. She's acted in some musicals and movies. And she is a counselor and a trauma and resilience practitioner. She's a speaker and a best-selling author of books for adults and children. And she's a great storyteller. Very funny gal. We talked about how her writing won her and her family tickets to the circus. Is that exciting or what? And we left off with talking about her marriage that has ended and some of the abuses that went on there, both from her husband and from the church community. And so now this week, we're going to talk about her experience with fostering and adopting and the challenges there. Her, her parenting skills didn't work with the foster to adopt children that she has. So she's going to share with what did work and the shifts that she had to make. I think that is very valuable. How do you deal with trauma that the children bring into the family? How do you help them to heal while you're healing from your own trauma? And she's going to go into the really traumatic event that happened in her home where her mother-in-law was murdered right in the house. And so I don't want to delay it any further here. So here's part two of our conversation. Here's Marcy. Now, did you want to talk more about your experience with fostering and adopting? I mean, what were some of the struggles that you had Well, if we continue to go back to my childhood and the messages that I carried, I brought those to parenting too. I brought those to my marriage. I brought those to parenting. I brought those to my relationship with God. And so the way that showed up in my parenting was these kids need a home and I have a home. They need beds and I have beds. And I knew the need because I worked in that industry. So I knew that families were separated all all the time and that kids were often sent out of the city, out of the county because there was no space within the one they came from the change was tremendous or they were placed with like families who were in it for money who didn't even speak the language you know we've Mm. got some like local farming communities that for a while I don't know still but they were placing kids in those places because they could get food and shelter but they couldn't understand a thing they said and there was no like cultural connection so I'm thinking like well I can come in and be a hero here right I probably didn't use those words but I thought like yeah for sure I can at least get like one or two of those kids and spare them whatever the other options are and so we ended up fostering seven kids at the same time that we birthed two so and that was all in 20 months. So it was really fast. 
we had a 13 year old with a baby. We had a 15 year old, we had siblings, like we had all a whole, whole gamut of kids in the experience. But part of what I, what my experience was, again, like as a woman in our culture, just overall, I find that we judge moms quite a bit for the behavior of their children. Mm -hmm. And so these kids came to me with traumatic backgrounds and beginnings, attachment disorders, all of this like stuff, their brain is trying to figure out and understand. And um, they'll often target the mother figure because of that original mother wound that they were separated from. So here I am, the mother in the role. <laughs> and, and they and, and they're not behaving the way that I raised them to behave, right? They're unpredictable. And they're kind of charming in the public eye. But then scandalous and oh, other words wow. at home you know it was like Jekyll and Hyde it was like raising Jekyll mm -hmm. and Hyde's children and I took responsibility for that like especially as a believer if God's unconditional love is healing if he is a healer and his unconditional love doesn't fail and and I'm a conduit of his love but they're not healing then it's not his love that's broken and it's not them. It must be me. Mm -hmm. So I lived a lot of my parenting years really struggling on a surface level with their behavior and how that was a reflection of me. And so then that made me try harder, pour harder, pray harder, study more, do more, whatever, whatever I could, just like I was trying to do with my husband. Now, now I brought in these kids and I'm doing the same thing with them. If I can help them be happy and healthy and whole, then I am somebody who has worth and value. And um, I think that's actually way more common. In fact, I was in a group with parents the other day and I heard a mom talking like that, like just the impact of our kids' behavior and the reflection that that is on us. And I really had to, but it was God. I literally woke up one day and I heard God say, Marcy, you are a good mom. You're a good mom. And I sat up into that and I was like, I am. I'm a good mom. Perfect moms aren't relatable. So I'm even better than a perfect mom because I'm relatable. <laughs> I, I acknowledge my mistakes. I care. I'm intentional. I try. And it freed me from their behavior. And I just was like, almost, almost had this new delighted energy. Like you guys, I'm a great mom. If you want to like experience that I'm here. If you don't, that's so sad, but I get it, you know, <laughs> and that ended up just being this huge shift for me to allow them to be on their journey. And I didn't have to have the emotional connection to it as far as like my value. I could mm -hmm. show up from like a genuine place of love for them, but I could also have really healthy boundaries between me and them. And the boundaries were really about, um, again, my worth and value. Like I can let you make these decisions because they don't reflect me and they don't determine whether I have value or worth. And so now I can just love you because none of that anxious energy is attached to it. And that also meant that I could love them in, in an unconventional way, right? Because again, a lot of our culture is like, well, this is what love looks like. And it's, it's, there's a lot of really specific ways that parents can show love. And there's a really specific ways that parents shouldn't show love. You know, an example, I'll just give an example because I know mm. that can be a bit abstract, is um, kids like mine, I'm trying to decide if this is the example I want, Okay, I'll give this example. Um, when my kids had diagnosable trauma, personal, like disorder, attachment disorders as a result of their early, early abuse. And as such, their brains rewired to communicate to them 
deep down neurologically that anyone who is in the position who should be loving and caring and trustworthy, a caregiver, a mother, a father, primarily, right, is actually going to kill them because that very first parent didn't fulfill their, their obligation from a biological level, right? The body experiences that that first person could not keep me safe or chose not to keep me safe or, mm-hmm. or abandon me because we're not together now. And so the brain rewires and actually flips upside down the understanding of trust and safety and danger and not trust. So in public, they tend to very quickly superficially attach to strangers. They're often the kids, not every kid who's like this, but they're often the kids who every adult is like, oh my gosh, this is the sweetest, most respectful, cute kid ever. And then you take them home and they're an absolute terror. And some of that is because when you demonstrate traditional forms of love and connection, it triggers their fight or flight. Like, well, the last person who is in this position hurt me. So you probably will too. It's just the brain association and we can, we can work on that. But I didn't know that. So what I had to learn was how to demonstrate love and connection in a different way. It couldn't be all necessarily physically affectionate or I love you or, or connect it like emotionally connected in the way I wanted. It had to, it had to be slow and mindful. It meant sometimes, um, that I would talk side by side instead of looking at them, you know, Mm. in our culture, like you make eye contact and you look at someone's face and you acknowledge that they're right there in front of you, but that would immediately trigger the fight or flight in, in my kids. So I had to be creative about how and when can we have conversations that, that are, that feel connection. But then I also knew to expect that if they began to feel connection, there would be a behavior burst that would follow to sabotage the connection. So in our home, it just looked different. It meant that sometimes I couldn't um, talk directly to them. I would have to talk about them, like with my husband, and almost like coach or model how the conversation could go if we were actually having it. So other people in the room might be like, that's so rude. You're talking about them in front of them. But it piqued their curiosity, and so it made them pay attention. Whereas when I talked directly to them, it triggered that fight or flight, flooded their brain with all the hormones, and they couldn't couldn't hear or listen. So it just was like really upside down, and I had to learn that that was okay even when other people didn't understand it because parents love to give advice and assume that their one way that it's worked is everybody's way. It should work that way. And I had to like, again, separate myself from my worth or value being tied to how other people felt about how I'm, I'm loving these kids. Um, and then at the end of the day, I know that I did my best. There are definitely things that I would do differently, but now they're adults. And they have to make decisions for their own healing and recovery. And they're not making the decisions I would want for them or would make for them. And so I continually get to practice. What does it mean to trust them to God and to, to allow them to have their own journey and not need my fingers all up in it and just be here waiting for them. Kind of like the prodigal father who who waited and just waited and watched the horizon. Um, That's a little bit now my role with them because they've continued to live, um, from their trauma. And I get to hope and pray for them one day to find some healing. But until then, I'm just, I'm waiting. But it's been um, an important journey and a powerful journey. And again, like inducted me into a club that I didn't know existed. And now I get to be a support to families like ours and bring healthy conversation. Like, hey, is this not working for you? Let me tell you why. Let me help you understand the brain. And then we can approach 
love and connection differently. Or here's, let's like reset expectations. Mm-hmm. My expectation was if I unconditionally love you as a conduit of God's love, you're going to heal. Well, that's not actually how it works. <laughs> you know, like it, is, it doesn't actually work that way. So what can we expect? Well, we can expect that I'm going to do my part and they may not do theirs and that's okay. Like they're on their own journey and we still keep doing our part. So that was a long answer to the question of like, was it like foster and adopt? But it's, it has been probably one of the most transforming, refining experiences in my life um, as far as just my own personal growth as well. So yeah. I have a lot that I'm grateful for, even though it was very hard. No, I appreciate the long answer because we talked before the show that I have friends that have done the foster to adoption and they're having a really hard time and they're just crying and at their wits end. And it's good to know that they're not alone. I have, I have no training at all in that whatsoever. And so I feel helpless to ease their pain, but yeah, there's two books I've written, Reclaiming Hope, I mentioned, and the other is called Parenting Children of Trauma. And in that book, I have some understanding of the brain that I just touched on in our conversation, but also some strategies. Some of those parenting things I just quickly addressed are actual strategies in there that people can try. Um, I, I actually refused to write that book for a while because I felt like I couldn't step into a home with my magic wand and like fix it, which is what I wanted. I wanted to just give like, here's the equation. And now your family's whole and healthy. It looks like the posters on the wall. And, and I couldn't, I couldn't do that. And I was sharing that with a new friend. I mean, we are best friends now, but I, I didn't even know her then. And I remember bringing up something like that. And she said, Marcy, we don't like, nobody reads your books because they're looking for the magic wand equation. We read your books because you're so good at removing shame from people. And that's what we need. And as soon as she said that, it unlocked in me the ability to write Parenting Children of Trauma. I knew that I could provide a book where shame was lifted. And that has been a go-to book for a lot of families and agencies. I get a lot of feedback from that one. Um, And I think that's why. There are strategies. There are things in there. But essentially, it's like, hey, there's some brain stuff at work here. And it matters. And that's what what you're up against. It's not your own worth and value. So we, a lot of us tie it in. It's not that you're a bad human or a bad parent. It's because you've said yes to this relationship, which is so important and necessary, but, but the expectations you were set up with were kind of not the right ones, not helpful. So let's reset those. Let's reframe things. Let's redefine love in this context. There was a day, oh, you know what? I was probably writing the book going, God, I don't like this book. I did want, I still want the magic wand for people. I think that's what happened. And God kind of gave me this image because my idea of love was still that you die because he died for me. And so I'm probably supposed to die for everybody else. That's love. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down for his, like his life for his brother. Right. right like, right. and so I just had it in my mind that the only way to love was to die. And I heard this image I got was like, Marcy, the reason I died for you is because that's what you needed. There was literally no other answer. That's why I died. These kids do not need a dead mother. That is not love for them. And it was like, oh, like what? There's another way to love that doesn't involve me dying. Like I did not know another way. That was the invisibility piece too, right? Less of me, more of everyone else. And it unlocked me to be able to see 
the importance of my own existence and the value of my health as a demonstration of love to those kids. And we don't talk about that. I think especially as believers, like, no, you're supposed to die. If you're not pouring out, you're not exhausted and you're not depleted then you're not dying enough. Right. Like, and so, and so I know it's just this other message we pick up and I just, and I just, I don't believe that. I think there is a time and a place that the word is true. And I think what God showed me was when that's what's needed, but that's not always the way of demonstrating love. And so that's the kind of stuff that I talk about in that book. It's not directly faith based because I want to help all of the families. I don't want to turn any off, but I do share about how my own faith supported me in the journey. Um, and so that's how that one came about. <laughs> Parenting children. Yeah. That's so that's awesome. for anyone who's listening, who might be like your friends or connecting. Um, there are those two books. I have one Speranza sweater for, uh, that follows a child. It's a picture book. And then I have a free Facebook community called Reclaiming Hope. You are more than your traumatic experiences. And you can join us there too, just as a safe place to process, ask questions. I'll hop on sometimes and do lives and answer questions or share whatever's on my mind. Um, but it's just another way to form community again around hard conversations, but important, important conversations. Wow. And you guys, you have books that you use art Mm -hmm. because that's a healing tool in itself, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you mentioned that with music. So now I'm also a certified trauma and resilience practitioner. And, and again, this is all like a deep dive just to understand my own world. (laughs) (laughs) Just teach teach me. Like I want to be a sponge for how do we help then? That's why the first book is reclaiming hope. It's not about like, let's just talk about why it's hard. Let's talk about then how we stake our claim, our hope claim in it and say, no, I will not give up hope here. I just need some help. And I need to be able to talk about the hard things. And so in that journey of learning, how do we talk about the hard things? I've learned a ton about trauma and trauma recovery. And I won't get too geeky about it right now, but I, I love to talk about it. <laughs> the brain. Actually, I do have two TEDx talks, and one of them I go into a bit more about the brain. It's you are more than your traumatic experiences, and they're on my website. Um, but our brain is, is wired for our survival, naturally. But where it stores traumatic events that have not been processed is in our brain stem, which is like the oldest part of our, our brain. It's the first to develop when we're born or born being developed in the womb even. And it's responsible for all of our automatic functions. So breathing, sleeping, eating, anything you don't have to think about, but that you do happens there. But therapy happens with talking and they talk to our prefrontal cortex, which is very rational and logical. And um, we need it. We need it, but it's not where the trauma is stored. And so a lot of talk therapy is ineffective because we're not talking to, we're not addressing the right part of the brain. The part of the brain that needs addressed is that brainstem, and that's very sensory. This is my this is my <laughs> prologue into why music and writing and art and all of these things that are that that involve our body and our mind and our emotions, like unscripted, especially, are so healing for the traumatized parts of our I'll say our brain of the unprocessed trauma that resides in our brainstem. And so we don't even have to fully understand what is stuck there. We don't, it's not even always about retelling the story, but telling stories, letting our body tell the story that's trapped inside however it wants. Maybe it's movement, maybe it's dance and no one even has to see it, but you're just letting your body do what it wants to do. Maybe it's strumming chords or piano keys or whatever it is and just letting yourself exist uncensored. 
Um, there's some work you can do prompted. You know, I could say, take the clay and build a little man. But if you take the clay and you just form whatever needs to be formed, there's a healing work that happens regardless. And so that's one of the fun things I've learned about writing is that all those years of me processing my world that way was a healing act. And I had no idea. Like I just, my default for survival happened to be very healing. And so at, the more I told those stories, the more I began to share them publicly, the more I began to get feedback and, and hear community come alongside me, which is a healing thing for us. Belonging is a healing part of, of our traumatic experiences. Then I got to, then I got to move on to the next thing that needed attention. <laughs> so you've said that, I mean, if I can throw this back at you a little bit, you've said music has been something like that for Absolutely. you. What's been your experience as like a singer, songwriter, musician, and how have you seen that kind of support you in your own healing? Well, I'll tell you what, there have been times in my life I didn't understand what, why I was going through my abuse and trauma and I was mad at God. I hadn't moved out yet, but I was on the couch, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and even if I didn't feel like praying or reading my Bible, there was always music. Mm. The music could reach me when nothing else could. God could use a song and reach me and soften my heart and, you mm. know, coax me back into his, into his fold, right? Mm. And so when I left my abuser... That was an outlet for me to put my feelings and experience in music to communicate and be there for others going through the same thing. Yeah. You're not alone, right? That's right. And we're so impacted not only by what we create, but by what we receive. And so I imagine that you can also listen to someone else's song and it can like almost act as your own voice sometimes like you mm -hmm. resonate so deeply that it that it feels like it has the same impact even though you didn't write it exactly it connection yeah this is the power of those sensory activities that we can be part of that we don't even have to really understand I didn't know as a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old that as I journaled I was tapping into my brainstem, processing through unprocessed trauma. That's the beauty of it. And I think that's God's design. Our leaning in our design is always towards healing. Our, our body and our brain is always trying to heal itself. We can prevent that through old habits and patterns and mindsets and all sorts of things, but we're trying, we're trying to heal. And so I love how his kindness is even demonstrated in that. Yes. Right? Like he knew we're in a whirlpool of sin and yet he gave us a brain and a body and a mind and a spirit that's constantly moving towards health, um, regardless of whether we understand it or have the therapist to interpret or explain it or whatever, right? Like we're just, we're just doing the things as our body kind of speaks to us. I want to be respectful of your time because, I mean, this is like being in a therapy session right now. <laughs> I mean, this is great stuff, but I wanted, if, if you're okay with it, you had gone through some trauma on top of all the other trauma you just you just mentioned uh with your mother-in-law being murdered right there in your home yeah are you okay with sharing that story yeah for sure so four days before my first wedding anniversary um we were set to leave for 10 10 days we were going on two trips. So the first 10 days were in El Salvador. And then we were going to spend, I think, another 10 days in, in South America, Paraguay. And, but when we woke up that morning, um, my father-in-law woke us up, but then the phone rang and it was an ambulance 
saying, hey, is somebody hurt? And it ended up that my father-in-law had killed his wife while we were sleeping in the same house. They were down the hall in like a mother-in-law suite. And he had had some kind of psychotic blackout that we still don't totally understand. Um, but he came to enough to recognize that she was hurt to call the police and to wake us up. Um, the, the, the part that always gets me is that like somewhere between his part of the house and our part of the house, he came to because he could have not, right? Like we were just sleeping unsuspecting um, to what was going on mm-hmm. by God's grace, he came to and, and didn't hurt anyone else. Our door was wide open, you know? So, um, yeah, it ended up that he, he killed her. He has no memory of it. And that launched our lives dramatically into at least three years of probate court and trying to figure out like in California, if you're insane, do you still inherit what is insanity? What's innocent by reason of insanity versus guilty by like just all these things, right? And um, so it ended up that he had he was diagnosed with two forms of dementia, one of them stroke induced. So it's possible that some of this happened during a stroke, that he maybe mixed some medication with some alcohol, that he'd been having insomnia for who knows, like this volcano of things yeah. seemed to have happened. Um, but this was like our newlywed experience <laughs> like it was already rough because I mentioned abuse so there are already things happening that I didn't know how to label and now we're now we're reeling through this mm. and um yeah so then my son our firstborn was born in the same house where my mother-in-law was killed just before we moved out and bought our own house and um, because we had to stay in that house for the three years while everything was in probate oh so we also continued to have to live there um yeah, but so much. So I did write a book on that too, because I write stories about my experiences to help people. So that one's called While We Slept, um, Finding Hope and Healing After Homicide. And it's a memoir where I take you through the whole thing, all the, all of it. Um, and there are just so many kind of full circle moments looking back where I'm like, God, you allow the hard things, but you never leave us. Like his fingerprints are all over everything. And you know, I may never understand the fullness of why. Um, and I will always grieve that she's gone. She doesn't get to know mm-hmm. her grandkids. And I wish, I so wish mm-hmm. that they could have known her. Um, but at the same time, I know that book has impacted a number of people. And one of my first kind of fan mail messages was from a woman who said, um, I've been laying in bed for like months, depressed, contemplating taking my own life. I came across your book and I decided if you can survive that, I can get out of bed today and get dressed and drink some water. Aww. And I can do that tomorrow too. And she did. And she's still alive. Like, you know, and, and I had to overcome some things to publish that book. Not everyone in the family shares my faith or um, appreciated that I was telling the story, even though they hadn't read it. There was a lot of um, assumption around why I would tell that story, that surely I meant to harm him. I don't. Um, I have no intent of harming him. And in fact, the only thing people could find if they Googled his name before were the two news articles that said he was insane. And so now if you Google him, my book comes up and you get the full story and it's one of grace and forgiveness and redemption. I mean, I love him and Mm. I, I'm, (laughs) I'm so sad that he had to live his life like this. Like it's one thing when you intend to hurt somebody, it's something else when mental illness or 
whatever happened like steps in and you killed Mm -hmm. your wife and you have no idea like that's I can't even imagine trying to live his life you know so so it's hard hard to like the family assumed ill intent of me um and it did cost some relationships that sadly weren't adding adding anything to me anyway but again like as that people pleaser who was still learning that like my value didn't come from other people I struggled a lot to like want everyone to feel happy with me so that I could feel like a good human. And, and God really confronted me on that and said, Marcy, you're choosing your reputation over my call for you to put this story out there. And so that was like one of those, ouch, but you're right. And so I did eventually hit publish and it's been really impactful. My TEDx talk is on part of that as well. And, um, and it's been, it's been an answer to a lot of people who are involved early on journalists and, and attorneys, like, how are you guys okay? We deal with hard stories like this all the time and you guys are okay. Like how and why are you okay? You know? And, and it was our faith. Like for me, like my faith was the anchor in the midst of that storm. And so because enough people were asking, my book is really an answer to that question. How was I okay? How are we okay in the middle of something so devastating and so surprising? And, um, and if that can become a source of hope or inspiration for, or encouragement for anyone else going through hard things, then like, it just adds a little more, I don't say value, because I've been using that throughout this conversation, but a little bit value to the experience I had to know that I can also now use it for good and not just leave it as this dark skeleton in the closet that we don't Mm. talk about. Yeah. Cause you can't really shove the trauma under the carpet and pretend it's not there no that makes it a lot worse and then we miss the miracles that do come and mm-hmm. not every traumatic event i i don't know i i'm not going to make a promise that every traumatic event is followed by a miracle but i've not i've now had enough experiences in life that every hard thing i've had with enough distance and hindsight i can begin to see like these circles almost like a completion, like this hard thing, but then this beautiful thing, this hard thing, but then this Mm. beautiful thing. And, and I, I I don't want to miss those moments. I could just focus on the hard thing, but then I'd miss the, the, the beauty, the beauty that can come from it. And I don't want to miss those. I want to see the whole thing. I'm going to always grieve. There will always be grief connected to that. But then there's this deep gratitude that's attached also, because I've seen the way that God has continued to use that story for myself, for other family members, for people who don't know us at all, who come across the story. Like it's so beautiful the way that he uses our stories. Psalm 107 too says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story Yeah, over and over. And then there's all these little vignettes of hard things. And then it's followed up with like, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Like we're called to to share those things because I know then we're also testifying to the way that he's our anchor he's our stability he's 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 enough when we're not like all those pieces come together so yeah that's <laughs> that story yeah those moments of beauty are there if we're looking for them if we allow God to show them to us if we're closing ourselves off yeah put that wall up and not let anybody in to show you those wonderful times. That's yeah, we miss out on those blessings. I don't want to interrupt, but in the moment, we'll it's it becomes cliche, right? Someone's going through something hard, and we're like, oh God, we'll use this for good. That is not the time. I stopped doing that. That's not the time. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying this so you now have like <laughs> more ammunition to go to the next wounded person. No, I just I just know. 
I can grieve with a person who's grieving. I don't have to say those words. I can let them experience the pain they're in and pray and trust that there's beauty coming. I don't mm. have to make it a promise for them or, or try to like make their feelings less heavy because someday maybe like, no, we sit with each other where we are. We carry yeah. the burdens for each other, but I get to have this quiet knowing. And if God prompts me to say whatever, then that's different. But like, for the most part, it's not the time. <laughs> we just it's sit true. and then believe and hope for them until they're believing and hoping for themselves. And we get to be part of the witness, the crowd of witnesses around them when, when their full circles happen. Yeah. I had to learn the hard way. Don't, don't Christianese the person you're trying to help. Don't quote Bible verses at them. Yeah. Learn that the hard way. I can't imagine trying to heal from, you know, the loss of your mother-in-law that way it's there's sometimes no words for that but your story is so powerful and what you do and i'm so appreciative of you coming on the show today i think the listeners got a lot of value and inspiration how can they connect with you again i know you mentioned your stuff before but if you could say that again one more time (laughs) Yeah, of course. So uh, the best place is my website, which is my first and last name.com, marcypusey.com. My TEDx talks are there, and then it will direct you to some of the other things I do. So I am a trauma and resilience certified story coach. So I help people tell their story, heal from their story, especially believers who feel called to tell their story and just don't know how or when or where. Maybe it's mindset or logistics. I've got a program um, and community that supports that. So if you go to marcypusey.com, that's sort of my umbrella site. And then I have a press site, Miramare Ponte Press. I'll give you how to spell that. Um, And that's where some of those things can be found if you're in the process and you want to tell your story and you just need a hand to hold or some guidance or logistics. Um, I feel called to not only shine where God has planted me, but to help others shine where he has planted them. And so whatever is in the way of you shining to the brightest of your ability, I feel called to support you in, especially as it comes to telling your story. Let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Recognizing because of my therapeutic background that there is a healing element that's part of it, which always entails a wrestling, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. And like, revisiting hard things and navigating those emotions. So I bring all of my therapeutic awareness to those conversations and those supports. So marcypc.com, the press site, and then I'm on Instagram and I hang out there. So that's at Marcy Marie on Instagram. And if you go to marcypc.com, there's a pop-up that happens. Um, that's a free guide on how to begin thinking about healing through storytelling. So even if you just kind of want to start, I'm like, what does this look like for me? How could I begin to experience healing or offer healing through telling parts of my story? There's a free gift there for that too. Awesome. I'm going to get that myself, to be honest with you. (laughs) Yes. I'll definitely keep in touch. Absolutely. God bless you. You too. And thank you again so much for having me. And to all of you who stuck through this and listened, I know it was a little longer, but um, I just so value that you invited me to this sacred space of, of your listeners. And, and I hope that what everyone can walk away with today is, um, like you said, some encouragement and hope and inspiration and knowing that you're not alone 
um, in any of the hard things that you're going through. And thanks for providing such a space for people to come feel safe and find those connections and know that they're okay. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to the Wounds of the Faithful podcast. If this episode has been helpful to you, please hit the subscribe button and tell a friend. You can connect with us at dswministries.org, where you'll find our blog along with our Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel links. Hope to see you next week.